This is the Happen to Your Career podcast with Scott Anthony Barlow. We help you stop doing work that doesn't fit you, figure out what does, and make it happen. We help you define the work that's unapologetically you, and then go get it. If you're ready to make a change, keep listening. Here's Scott. Here's Scott. Here's Scott. One of the one of the thoughts that's really interesting is you and I are sort of going through this together in some ways with you know, new books roughly at the same time, the struggles that go through writing and promoting a book and very worthwhile struggles. Also, it is a challenge to to put it mildly. And I am I am curious, you know, what has been different for you in writing this book versus your last book? I think the biggest difference for me is the <laughs> the desire. And so let me let me explain. Yeah. So with the first book, I always knew I was gonna I was I always knew I was gonna write a book. It's gonna be on negotiation, conflict resolution, finding confidence in conflict was born. That wasn't a surprise. This book was for me. And it's a book that I did not want to write. It was a topic I didn't want to to cover at all. So after finishing up my law degree and getting my master of public policy, I did some civil rights work for a long time. Yeah. And I was absolutely emotionally burnt out after doing it. I after years of doing this, Scott, believe it or not, I hadn't beaten racism. And so I'm saying to myself, what is the point? I'm done. So I was just emotionally spent. And so I decided, listen, I'm I'm out of this game completely to the point where I stopped watching news. I and if somebody would make a post about social justice, race or racism or politics of any kind, I would unfollow them, including someone you might know as Whitney Christian, my wife. <laughs> so you Scott, unfollowed your wife? Hold on, back up for a second. You yep. unfollowed Whitney? Unfollowed her. Unfollowed her. Yeah. And I let her How did that go? What was that conversation like at the dinner table when she realized? (laughs) (laughs) Well, she was asking why I wasn't watching her stories. I was like, well, funny story about that, Whitney. (laughs) You've been blocked. Give me, give me your phone. I'll watch it from your phone. (laughs) But your posts are a little bit too woke for me. I've had enough. I'm out of this game. Yeah. So then in uh, June of 2020, there was the another racial reckoning in the U.S. Yeah. And a lot of social unrest. And so I was doing the same thing. I was using my ostrich technique. I was avoiding it. And it was great for my mental health, but I wasn't helping anybody other than myself. You know, it was really selfish. And so Whitney, she listens to the Negotiate Anything podcast a little bit too much, Scott, because she's very persuasive now. And she said, well, Kwame, the, you keep on telling people you need to have these conversations. You need to lean in and have difficult conversations, but you're avoiding this. And mm. you, in particular, you are somebody who is particularly well-versed in this, and you have a unique voice. You have the background in civil rights. You're also a negotiation and conflict resolution expert, and you are a Black man living in America. There's nobody else that, that checks those boxes. And people are looking for your leadership and you're not there. So I said, okay, point taken. I'm going to uh, I'm going to do my good deed. I'll put on a little event, a little free webinar, um, how to have difficult conversations about race. I'm going to strategically market ineffectively <laughs> to make sure nobody comes. This sounds still a little bit this. like putting your head back in, you know, ostrich land. It it really yeah. was. And so the I made one post on LinkedIn to talk about it with like two days notice. Yep. And the post went viral. 
and th- like over a thousand people registered for the thing later in the day. And it was people from all around the world. And I was shocked at how successful it was. And I think the thing that was so shocking was how much I enjoyed doing it because this time around, the way that I, I approached it is that I said, I'm going to stay in my lane. I'm not going to tell people how they should think about race. I'm going to teach them how to talk about race. I'm going to take a completely skills-based approach to help people elevate the discussion. And then a literary agent reached out and said, hey, Kwame, this is your second book. And I said, oh, oh no. Okay. But listen, if if people are, are asking for it, I'll make it happen. And And really, when it comes to my approach with difficult conversations and the way I'm approaching my career and everything... For me, I believe the best things in life are on the other side of difficult conversations. And I want to be that thought leader that is where the most difficult conversations happen to be. And in 2020, it was undoubtedly on the topic of race. And so my philosophy is, if you can handle this difficult conversation, almost every other difficult conversation everything else gets much easier. easier. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What, what do you think... <laughs> And I've asked a lot of people this question and I get a variety of different answers, but I'm really curious as to your thoughts. Cause, cause I don't think you and I have talked about this that I can recall. So I'm really curious, you know, what, what do you feel make the conversations particularly difficult about race from your opinion? Yeah. So it's, it's two main things and you have to think about it too, because as, as a mediator and a business negotiator and a lawyer, I've been in some tough conversations and nothing compares to the level of emotionality that comes from difficult conversations about race and other issues that, that touch on identity. And so it's two main things. It's identity and morality. So identity, who I am, who am I supposed to be? What does it mean to be me? And what does somebody like me do? And then morality, what does it mean to be a good or bad person? And so when you think about race, politics, religion, gender identity, all of these really sensitive topics, they really all come down to those core issues. And whenever you touch on those core issues, then emotionality increases exponentially. So whatever whatever we're topic we're talking about. We have to have a framework and an approach that addresses the emotionality and can transition the the subject matter to something that's more substantive, but you have to start off with the emotions first. And that's where people trip up. That's one of the things I've always loved about your approaches to any kind of difficult conversations, whether it be race or anything else, which is you said, if you can handle the conversation around race, everything else might be markedly easier. But we actually talked about that specifically how to handle some of the emotional elements back in episode 459. So if you're interested, you can go back and check out episode 459 where we had Kwame on then too. But tell me more about when you say emotionality, when you say, when you're talking about the emotion, it's easy to understand when there's heightened emotion that that makes it more difficult. But what are some of the nuances there that maybe don't get don't get asked about or people don't realize are underlying the surface when we talk about emotion that way? Yeah, when when I think about emotion, Scott, I I like to focus exclusively on the emotions. So there's a difference between facts and feelings, but in the moment they feel the exact same way. And so think about these um, conversations. Sometimes yeah. somebody will state 
a fact, and I'm using air quotes here because what somebody thinks is a fact has has changed over the years, right? So somebody would state a fact or a belief or whatever, and they would state it with certitude, but they would also state it with emotionality. So for me, as a negotiation expert, I'm going to ignore the substance of what they said and address only the emotionality. Because a lot of times people will latch on to something that is not true, but it will feel true in the moment because of the emotions. Mm -hmm. And so instead of attacking the point that they made at that moment, I'm going to focus on the emotions exclusively and ignore what they said. Because if I instead decide to attack them in that moment, then they feel compelled to defend that. And so even if later on in the conversation, they realize that they're wrong, now they've also invested their ego into that position, which makes it more difficult for them to uh, adjust. And I think it's really when we think about what makes these conversations so tough, it's the emotions, but also the fact that the emotions will be blended in with, with words and statements that are meant to be substantive. And you have to be able to separate those things with surgical precision, and then come back to the substance later on in the conversation once the emotions have died down. But it takes a lot of skill to recognize that distinction. And then also a lot of discipline too, because you're going to be emotional <laughs> during that conversation and you might want to be more combative, but that's not the most effective way to persuade or communicate. Okay. So all of that sounds really wonderful in theory. Now yes. <laughs> let's talk about, and I, you're so wonderful at this. You know, every time you and I have a conversation, you pull out actual examples. So give me an actual example of a conversation, particularly difficult conversation about race, and then how we do that, how we separate that out with precision, and then how we bring it back at the end. What does that look like, sound like, smell like, taste like? Oh. Great question. So let's use let's use an example that is portable. And what I mean by portable is that we could use it in a ton of different situations. And something that's coming up a, a lot in the workplace is the issue of microaggressions. Mm-hmm. So these are statements that people made that are offensive and they touch on some element of somebody's identity that makes them feel like they're less than or they don't belong, something like that. Yeah. Right. So I'll give an example. So where are you from can be considered a microaggression. So somebody can ask somebody else who has an accent, where are you from? And then they say, well, I'm from New York. Well, no, where are you really from? It's like, no, I'm sensing some foreignness is what we're saying. So where are you really from? And I love this example because it is so fluffy and human interactions are so fluffy, right? It's so nebulous, right? The reason I love this example, Scott, is because for me as a Caribbean American, I used to have a really strong accent. So for me, I loved when people asked me this question because it's an opportunity for me to share my culture. So it brought me joy when I got that question. So now fast forward to law school, I I hear somebody who has an, uh, an accent and we're chatting and I ask where they're from and they were offended. They were really offended. I was surprised, right? So now let's pause. Let's analyze the emotions in this conversation, right? So we have the person who was offended right? They feel like they have been othered. They don't like that, right? For me, what emotions am I feeling? I'm feeling defensive because there was nothing malicious in what I said, but it was taken as though it it was taken offensively and they, it hurt their feelings, right? And so my emotions will drive me to defend themselves. Their emotions will drive them to address it and make sure it doesn't happen again, right? So what we have to do is this, as the person who is made the offensive remark, what I need to do is first 
suspend my emotionality, suspend my agenda. Agenda number one is going to be for me to, to try to, uh, <laughs> to defend myself. Nope. I'm going to focus on the damage, right? It's not about my intent. It's about the impact. So I'm going to focus on addressing their emotional distress. And then I will focus on addressing my, my issue of, of saying, Hey, I didn't mean to, but I'm going to, I need to earn my way to that point. Right. And so we can separate the fact that there was emotional damage that was done undeniably. Right. I'm going to focus on that. Then we can also focus on the fact that, hey, what I what I said, I didn't mean it that way. That is also a fact, but it's not the time to address that fact. Right. And so we have to separate the emotionality from the substance and address the right thing at the right time. I love that. You did not disappoint at all. (laughs) I, I like that example because it is something that for many people can seem unintentionally innocent. However, there can be so much, as you pointed out, emotion that can come from something that is so seemingly innocent in many different ways. Yeah. When you think about leaders who are, whether you know they are leaders of people or in other maybe non-title leadership roles in organizations, What do you feel like some of the biggest challenges around having difficult conversations about race are for them? One of the biggest challenges I've seen is that they are surprised when it happens or they don't realize that it should happen. Tell me more. Right. So let's say there is a situation where somebody believes race was a factor and the leader does not believe race is a factor. And so they, they brush it aside. They're like, okay, no, th- that's not a, a factor. The person who says, hey, race was an issue, they feel belittled and they, feel, they don't feel validated through that interaction. And so we have to realize what it means to have a difficult conversation about race. Like even defining that is really interesting. So let's just think about any other business topic. Let's remove the emotionality of race, right? So in business, there are things like time that is, that's going to be a factor. Budget is going to be a factor. Personnel chemistry, whatever, all of those things are going to be a factor. Now, somebody in a conversation might say, you know what? I don't think we should make this decision because I think it'll put us in a tough budgetary position. I might disagree, but I still have to have that conversation to hash that out, which makes it a difficult conversation about finances, whether or not I think it's germane, right? Mm -hmm. So then when it comes to difficult conversations about race, Somebody who's a person of color might say, you know what, this situation kind of touches on my racial identity in ways that you might not see. And so this becomes a difficult conversation about race, whether or not you agree that race is a topic, because we need to determine whether or not it's germane. And I think that's one of the things that's so surprising to people, just how often race becomes a topic of conversation. And it's the fact that it will come up at times when you're not expecting it that makes it really tough because most people graduate to managerial positions because they are really strong individual contributors. If I'm an engineer, I didn't grow up in, in, as a child and go through school and develop as an engineer to have conversations <laughs> about race. But as a leader, that might be put in front of me and I'm not familiar with how to have these conversations and I might not even recognize that I should be having them. I think it's interesting that you started out by comparing it to other difficult conversations that need to need to happen. Like you talk about, you know, I don't know, maybe a, maybe a finance director or something. And, you know, I, I still need to go and have the awkward conversation where in that particular case, I might not know anything about the finance budget and how it's impacting and they might get emotional about it. And I've never really thought about 
the conversation about race in that type of way. For some reason, that actually helps a little bit provide an analogy for me. So what advice would you give to those leaders? What advice would you give to people who are going to absolutely, as a part of their role, have conversations about race? Yeah. So let me give you three things. So the first thing is go to Amazon and buy how to have difficult conversations about race. <laughs> okay. <laughs> he might be joking. I don't know, but seriously, you should do this. Uh, like uh, Kwame has done a really, really nice job with this book. I've been uh, hearing about it for the last year. I think it's been year plus that, uh, that has been as he's been creating it. So yes, go do that. Okay. What's thing number two? Yes. Thank you. <laughs> thing number two, we have to adopt the right mindset. And so when it comes to this, the mindset around these conversations about race, I think the, the term humble acceptance comes to mind. So we have to be humble in that we are experts in our own lived experience, but not experts in the lived experiences of others. And so we have to respect the expertise and perspectives of everybody in the conversation because everybody has something to bring to the table. And so we need to go into these conversations with a learner's mindset. I need to learn. I need to empathize. I need to accept other people's experiences and learn from that too. Um, and then also accept the reality that these conversations are going to happen, whether we want them to or not. I, I own a company. I have a staff. I don't like having to talk about money all the time, but that's how people get paid and survive, right? So the, just in our careers, we're going to have difficult conversations about sensitive topics. We have to rise to the occasion. So we have to accept that reality. The next thing is I want you to have a, a really simple framework that you can put into action. And it's called compassionate curiosity. And so if you listen to the uh, episode 459, you, I probably brought it up then as well. But in this situation, it's really, really helpful because of the emotionality that's going to come up. So it's three steps. First step is acknowledging and validating emotions. Second step is getting curious with compassion. And third step is joint problem solving. And it's flexible. So you can use whichever step of the process whenever it's available. If there's not a, an emotional issue, then you can go straight to getting curious with compassion asking open-ended questions with a compassionate tone, and then transitioning into working together collaboratively to, to solve the problem, to determine what the relationship looks like going forward. But just sticking to a really clean and simple framework helps you in all of your difficult conversations. But of course, especially in these highly sensitive conversations about race. Let's take another real world example here. Give me yeah. another example of how someone might step through that framework using compassionate curiosity. Yeah. What does that sound like? Let's give an example. This is actually from a, a client. It was a tech company and the, the people were surprised to see significant discrepancies in the data. So uh, white Americans who were in the data set, they had a particular set of outcomes and then people of color had vastly different outcomes and they were surprised. They weren't even looking for it, but it became so obvious in the data set. So they found themselves in a situation where they have to have a difficult conversation about race. So let's kind of walk through what that could hypothetically be. So the person finds out this data and they say, hey, here's the data. <laughs> it's telling us a story. Um, we need to figure out what this means. And then another person could say, listen, I don't think we need to bring race into this. There's probably some other explanation for this. Let's just keep on moving forward the way that we were. We don't need to change anything, right? Okay, cool. So for me as a negotiation expert, I see this as a, a conflict, a negotiation that we, we just need to kind of talk through. And let's talk through the different issues on both sides. So the person who's bringing the data to the, to the conversation, they would say, I'm seeing a discrepancy. 
I want to make sure that we are vetting this thoroughly, looking into this, and then seeing if this requires any additional action items from us in order to do our jobs at a high level. The other person says they want to keep on doing it the way that we've been doing it. We don't know why, but we know that's their current position. So the conversation begins. So let's say I'm the person bringing the conversation with the with I feel the like we need sound effects first. Like, so the conversation I know. begins. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> I, I would okay, now go. If you, feel, if you feel comfortable doing the role play, that'll be more fun. Uh, we Dude, can do, you we feel can do that. Okay. Yeah. So all you need to do, Scott, is not want to do what I ask you to do. Okay. I can, <laughs> okay. I can totally do that. Cool. So, hey, Scott, I think we should have this conversation and and kind of talk through this data because there's a discrepancy and it seems to be pretty clearly aligned on racial terms. And I want to go through this and figure out if we need to do anything else. Uh, okay. I'm not really sure that there's a need to. Tell me a bit more. What What do you mean? Well, it seems like, you know, everything was working pretty well as it is. And yeah, I see the data there, but I mean, there's probably a good explanation for that, right? Yeah. I, I agree with you. I think there is an explanation. And the problem is I'm not sure what that explanation is. And I'm not sure how to figure out what that explanation is without further investigation. So that's why I think we need to take a little bit of time and, and go deeper into it. What's making you think that we should spend time on this versus all the other things that we have to do here? Like this is just another thing to investigate. Yeah, I, I agree. It is another thing to investigate. And my concern is that this is a surprise. And if we look deeper into it, we might find more surprises that could cause problems down the road. So that's why I want to take the time. And I, I want to dig into to your perspective a little bit, Scott, because correct me if I'm wrong, but it doesn't seem like you feel very comfortable doing that. Uh, I mean, I, I guess, like... Shoulder shrug. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Now let's let's pause the conversation really quickly. Yeah. Let's break this down. So I don't know what it is that you're feeling, but I'm sensing resistance. So I'm going to take an educated guess on comfort. That's a safe guess, right? When it comes to acknowledging the emotions, because I want to overcome any potential emotional barriers. And then there was a hesitancy in your response and the shoulder shrug, like you said. And I love that. That's what I'm going for. Because a lot of times, if you ask somebody a question, a really well-timed and well-placed question, they'll start to recognize themselves that there's a discrepancy between what they feel like doing and what they know they should be doing. Because there's something inside of you that's not letting you say, let's do this. (laughs) But you also know, Kwame brought up a pretty solid point of why we should do this but I still don't feel convinced what is that. And so whenever you see somebody kind of wrestling with that awkwardness, you need to shut up and not say anything and let them wrestle because what's going on in their mind will be infinitely more persuasive than anything else you interject at that moment. I love the point that it needs to take place in their mind. Not necessarily, because as humans, many of us feel very strongly that we need to be actively doing something to impact it in one way or another. And in this case, the actively doing something feels very passive because it is allowing the space and time for that person to wrestle, as you said. So great point. Yeah. And and think about this. The One of my favorite quotes about negotiation is, negotiation is the art of letting them have your way. I don't want to have this conversation and then people say, wow, Kwame's so brilliant. I changed my mind. I want people to think that my 
my presence is almost incidental to the transformation that happens inside of them. So I'm asking questions and allowing them to do the internal work. Very nice. Very nice. I found it uncomfortable to play the person who is so obstinate. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I'm personally wrestling with. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. Uh, that's great. Okay. So I, I appreciate that immensely. Thank you for the specific language and showing how that might happen. Here, here's what I'm curious about. And you and I chatted mm-hmm. a little bit about this before we really got going here and press the record button, but where do you think this topic is going to go in the future? I, I'm interested in you. I promised you, I was going to ask you this question where I'm interested in your prediction for where, where does this, where does this go in the future? If we're 10 years, 20 years, 30 years down the road, plus what does it look I like? I think it could go one of two directions. And so let's think about where we've been because Martin Luther King Jr. Civil mm-hmm. rights movement, that's not too far removed from where we are right now. I mean, that's less yeah. than a century ago. That's pretty recent when you think about just history in general. So we're not too far removed from for some pretty dark racist history here in the U S and in general in the world too, I'd say too. And so there we're, we're moving in the right direction when it comes to equity, equality, respect, racial justice, all of that stuff. I I recognize that for sure. Now, my hope is that we get to a point where talking about race is as simple and acceptable as talking about hair color, eye color, (laughs) those type of things. It's just, oh, that's just another human quirk. Let's talk about it, right? And I think in order for us to get there, there needs to be on the on the social side, there less, needs to be fewer discrepancies too. Because the discrepancies that we see statistically in, in different areas like education and things like that, I mean, it makes it hard to ignore. But that's where I would want it to be. What, what some of the, when you talk about discrepancies, give me a couple examples of what you mean when you say discrepancies. Yeah, great question. So for instance, when I was doing civil rights work, I yeah. was focused on health equity. And so my my narrow focus was infant mortality. And so a, a black baby born in the US is significantly, I think it's about twice as likely to die than a white baby born in the US before the age of one. Wow. And that's significant. That is significant. And yeah, that's significant. And it depends on where you are located. I mean, the 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 statistics are exacerbated depending on the state and, and region and things like that. Like it could be, I mean, close to the, the rates of a de- developing country in some pockets of society. It's, it's wild, right? When you think about um, leadership and at executive levels on when it comes to race and gender, there are significant discrepancies, right? So once we get to a point where those discrepancies aren't as stark, then I think it would be easier for us to transition. Now, there's the other reality that in other ways in the U.S., we're becoming more divided, we have the, I mean, the easy one to blame is, is social media, where the algorithm is has been weaponized to, to make it easier for you to stay in your echo chamber, which makes it more difficult for you to, to reach out and, and have conversations with people who see things differently. 
And we're seeing that division rising in the US. And so there's the other potential alternative alternative future where these identity-based things pull us further apart just because technology is doing a much better job of, of dividing us with precision. And so that's the more, that's the dark side of it. But mm. I always tip to the hopeful, <laughs> the hopeful trajectory. Where can people get the book? Yes. So anywhere books are sold, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, things like that. Also check out the website, AmericanNegotiationInstitute.com to, to learn more about our, our trainings and our workshops and other ways that we could support and some of our other books. And also check out the podcast. I'm assuming you're a podcast listener since you're listening to a podcast. So check out Negotiate Anything, which is five days a week. And then also check out Negotiate Real Change, which is all about using negotiation and conflict resolution skills for positive change in the workplace. And then lastly, we have a Spanish negotiation pro program called Negociación Desde Cero. It is the top-ranked negotiation podcast in Spanish. And it is also the only one, but we don't tell people that publicly. <laughs> <laughs> There's both sides. You heard it here first. Guami, as always, every time I get to chat with you, a pleasure. Thank you again. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. <laughs> 